One of the things I love most about getting to do this podcast is simply the privilege of having rich conversations with some of the people I respect most in the world. One of those is Dr. Wes Stafford. For virtually all his adult life, more than five decades, Wes has been a true champion for vulnerable children. For 45 years, he served in the leadership of Compassion International, including more than two decades as its president. And during those years, Compassion grew from what was really a small storefront ministry to what I understand today is the seventh largest nonprofit in the United States. But what I especially appreciate is that although Wes cares about those big picture things and the macro growth of an organization like Compassion, his true passion is the individual, the single child, the one story, the little difference that an individual can make in the life of another. To hear him tell it, in many ways, that is what has kept his eyes bright and his heart light, even while carrying very heavy loads. Today's conversation is a bit longer than normal, but I promise you it will be worth it. It is a lifetime of wisdom for a man who has lived well and continues to live well as a true champion for vulnerable children around the world. To Justice and the Inner Life, presented by the Christian Alliance for Orphans. Together, we'll explore what it takes to sustain a heart of justice and mercy over a lifetime. Here is your host, Jed Medefend. Well, I am here with Wes Stafford across the miles. And uh, Wes, it is a joy to have you here on Justice in the Inner Life. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you. Well, I, I imagine most of our listeners will be familiar with at least some of your story, maybe much of it, but uh, I would love to hear just a little bit about what first sparked your heart for these things, for work of justice and mercy. Do you, do you remember when you first started to, to feel that ache over the world's hurt and a, and a yearning to do something about it? Yeah, Jed, I really do. I remember, actually, I remember the minute. You know, I, I've written a book called Just a Minute. And in it, I make the case that there are minutes in a child's life that launch the rest of the future. There's always one minute that opens up the door to the, to the future. And you never know when that minute will be. So I can, I'll tell you a little of the context and then the minute that actually launched me for the last 45 years into this battle. So I grew up the son of missionaries in the Ivory Coast of West Africa. Um, a remote, tiny little village on the edge of the Sahara Desert. I mean, we were remote. We had no electricity, no indoor plumbing. Um, lived in just a little cement shack. And uh, my sister and I were the only white children for about 100 miles in any direction. So I grew up really the son of, a, of an African village. And much of uh, what stirred my heart and much of what defines me I learned from the poor. In fact, I tell people when I was Compassion's president that everything I need to know to lead this worldwide ministry, I learned from the poor in this little tiny village. But we were poor, and we had all of the symptoms of, of poverty. There was a lot of sickness, a lot of, a lot of death, uh, particularly among children. And I watched a lot of my little buddies die. Measles, um, malaria, snake bite, smallpox, starvation. Because we had no electricity, when the children died, we buried them, 
that very day. Mm. And I remember mourning the loss of friends that I had held in my arms in the morning. And that night they're gone. And we're burying them at the same time. And we told the stories of who they were and what they wanted to be. And I cried myself to sleep as a little boy, starting at about age five, almost uh, every night, because we were burying children almost every day. Mm. And I thought that that's how the whole world was, Jed. I, I thought I saw it in the animal kingdom, uh, and I thought, well, the old and the young are vulnerable, and, and they die. Uh, all I knew was this village. Um, but there came a moment when I was nine years old uh, where in a span of about two weeks, uh, one out of every four of my little friends in this village died, oh. but it was it was measles, and um, they were they were dropping like flies faster than we could bury them. And I remember being a little bit frightened uh, after a while, and I ran to my father. I remember he was in this hot tin shed. He was translating scriptures, so he had a whole rack of Bibles up there. I knew better than to interrupt him unless it was important. And uh, but I was frightened. And I, and I peeked my head around the corner, and my dad looked up from his books, and he said, well, Yes, son, what is it? And I said, Daddy, I have a question for you. When do you think it'll be my turn? And I'll never forget, he said, Your turn for what, Wes? And I said, My turn to die, Daddy. All my friends are dying, and I think maybe I might die soon, too. And uh, I'll never forget, because this is where that moment came. My father put down his Bible And he looked at me and he said, oh, Wes, you don't have to worry about this. And I said, well, how do you know, Papa? And he said, well, roll up your sleeve. And I rolled up my sleeve and he said, those little scratches on your arm, those are called vaccinations. You got those in America before you came here, so you wouldn't get this kind of thing. And I remember looking at my father, my eyes filled with tears. I remember his face going blurry and I stammered, Papa? That's not fair. Why don't, why don't all of my friends have scratches on their arms? Why me? And it was this epiphany that the world is, is simply not fair. There are the haves and the have-nots, the privileged, the, those who struggle. And I, uh, I left Africa when I was 15 years old, a few years later. But by then, half of all of my childhood friends had died. Wow. And I learned it wasn't necessary. So the first place I see in America is New York City, of all places. You talk about a culture shock. <laughs> the very first day I'm there, I see a grocery store, and I see all of these rows and rows of food. And I realize, you know what? Nobody needed to starve in my village. There is plenty of food. And next door was a pharmacy. And I walked in there. I spoke four languages at that time, and English was my weakest. <laughs> so I walked into this pharmacy, and I asked them, do you have a, a vaccine? And the man said, oh, yes, yes, we don't, we don't sell it to little guys like you, uh, but we have plenty. <laughs> and I suddenly had this epiphany. There's plenty of food, and there's plenty of medicine. None of this needed to happen. And I sat out in front of that store my first day in America, a skinny little 15-year-old. And I cried and I cried and I cried. And, you know, Jetta was New York City, so nobody so much as stopped to say, are you okay, little guy? And I finally ran out of tears, and I was just walk- watching these people walking by me. And I saw these fancy shoes and these purses and these watches, and I thought, you people, you have all of this, and you don't care. 
And I went into a rage that lasted all through my high school years mm. and on into college until I had lived in America long enough to learn the heart of the American people. And I realized, you know what, the issue is that they don't care. The issue is they don't know. And when they know, they really, really care. Maybe the most generous people in all the world. And I had this epiphany, this world change, and I suddenly realized I'm one of the few people who know both ends of this bridge. I know the poor. I know their values. I know how precious they are. But now I know these people, and I know while they may have money in their pocket that these people need, but they need the love and the joy and the hope of the poor. And I realized at that moment, my life has got to be a bridge between these two worlds. And I didn't know what that meant. I thought maybe I have to be an ambassador or work for the United Nations or something. When I stumbled into Compassion in Chicago, Compassion International, it was a storefront. And it turns out, although they were very, very small at that time, um, it turns out all they do is this bridge. They call it sponsorship. But it's a two-way street across this world, allowing the poor to bless those who aren't so poor and allowing those who have financial resources to bless the poor. Well, that was 45 years ago, and I have not looked back. I, uh, I threw my hat in the ring with compassion. I think you could summarize my calling is if poverty and I were, you know, two little guys duking it out in the playground, and the teacher jumped in between us and said, hey, 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 who started this? I could honestly say he did he broke my heart when I was a little boy, and all I'm doing is fighting back with the rest of my life. Mm. It, out of that very clear calling and that very broken heart, uh, I have gone forward in a ministry seeking for justice and mercy, particularly for the most vulnerable, the poor, and the uh, little children in poverty. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, Wes. Yes, and... Mm. And so often, for so many of us, this work did begin with pain, uh, an experience that, that drew us beyond whatever comforts we had known and um, brought some, some of maybe the greatest hurt we had had in life up to that time. And yet in that, discovering God's great work for us, or at least a facet of it. I never met anybody who is seriously working among the poor who doesn't have a powerful reason for why they're doing that. Hmm. It doesn't make sense career-wise. You're not going to make any money. You're never going to be famous. Uh, you've got to have a reason beyond all of that for your calling. And it's almost a powerful story almost every time. And so you have spent your life indeed both helping helping people in America and in the West and, and, and in the broader world. I know uh, increasingly beyond the West to both see and understand that need and the hurt when it perhaps hasn't as directly touch their lives, but then to respond to that, not simply to be mired and feeling overwhelmed about the world's hurt, but to, to have productive, fruitful ways to engage that. You cannot stir their hearts. You can't break their comfortable world without giving them a viable, credible option to live out their faith. And I, I feel I feel privileged that I found my way to compassion because if it hadn't existed, with my understanding that there needs to be a bridge, uh, I probably would have had to start it. So you've been involved right in the thick of that for forty five years. Yeah. 
and uh, and so much good and so much beauty, um, some of which I've seen. I know our family sponsored uh, children through Compassion when I was a kid, and we, we do now, a, another young person. Um, and it's it's been a, Thanks, Jeff. a... Absolutely, a gift to us. I mean, certainly we're pouring a little bit of good through Compassion, but Compassion is pouring good into our family as well. Um, but I imagine alongside all of that joy and the beauty, there have also been times in your journey when you have felt exhausted, maybe even completely burned out. Um, would Would you be willing to tell us about one or two of those times? Yeah, the, the, the one that comes to mind is early on, I had barely joined Compassion, uh, and then came the Ethiopian famine. This was one of the first big awakenings of the America or the church, uh, that there was real serious poverty, and uh, we all owed it. So that was the We Are the World days. Mm-hmm. And, I remember that. And, yeah. and all of that. And I was sent by compassion. We were not working in Ethiopia yet, but our sponsors insisted on contributing to Ethiopia. So we partnered up and uh, and started working in refugee camps. Uh, people were streaming into refugee camps to be mm-hmm. fed. And I remember flying in in this little Cessna into this, uh, into this refugee camp and uh, first time I'd ever seen anything like that. And was given a tour by, by one of the African men. And suddenly his radio crackled and they called him away. And uh, he, he was like, what am I going to do with this guy? He says, uh, that tent over there is for mothers and infants. Maybe you could visit that while I do this errand. So I walked over. And as I, as I got closer to this big army surplus tent is what it was, it was huge, uh, I heard murmuring inside. And I thought, I wonder what, wonder what that is. And I remember picking up the flap. I'm brand new at Compassion. I picked up the flap and looked inside. And because the light was coming in behind me and it was dark inside, every face turned and looked at me. And I saw hundreds of Ethiopian women uh, looking at me. And the silence that that followed. And uh, so I I quietly got inside. They were sitting in circles of about eight, ten people. And um, I got inside and I sat down in the circle right next to the flap of the tent where I was. And I watched when my eyes adjusted to the dark what was going on. And here were these mothers, skinny Israels. I mean, it was was right off of National Geographic. I, I was deeply moved by it. And I noticed what they were doing. They had a bowl of porridge in the middle of each little circle. And they were taking their little finger and they were getting a dip of porridge and putting it in the mouth of their little children on their laps who were just skin and bone. And I felt I was on holy grounds. This had to be as close to the heart of God as you get. When all of a sudden the little mother next to me over here reached over and handed me her little tiny baby. I remember their ribs were, and you could, you could see her ribs. The baby was fighting for breath, was, was lethargic. I don't know if she thought I was a doctor or if she thought that maybe something has to change here and maybe this visitor can do something for my child. So I held this little baby, and I did what everyone else was doing. I dipped my finger into the porridge, and I tried to put it into the corners of her little mouth to, to feed her, and she, she was just too weak to, to even swallow and I began talking to her, and I began praying, Lord, please, wouldn't it be wonderful, these people, to see some hope? Please let this baby live. And um, 
I tried several times. The mother was watching carefully, and um, the little baby suddenly went limp, and her head flopped over to the side, and she went from my arms into the arms of her Heavenly Father right there in that little tent. Hmm. And I, I held her for a while. I promised her, if ever I have the power, I will bring compassion to Ethiopia. There's not going to be more of this in your generation. And I could do nothing but hand her back to her mother. And as I, as I got up and walked out, the murmuring changed to, to mourning and wailing, uh, as Ethiopian women can. And I walked away thinking, Wes, you, you stepped into this field with the intent to alleviate suffering, to make the world a better place. And you can't even save the very first little child you hold in your arms. Why should you hope? What do you expect to do with your, with your career? Mercifully, uh, a, couple, uh, a, f- a few years later, I became Compassion's president. And the first decision I made as president was to honor that promise to that little baby. And I brought Compassion into Ethiopia. Hmm. And, uh, of course, the Marxist government had fallen by then, and we were free to do that. Today, 180,000 little children like that are sponsored in Ethiopia alone. Wow. But it was, it was one of the first move, movements in my, in my heart to realize it isn't just enough to really care. Uh, the issue is huge, and the issue is tragic, and the issue is big, and it's going to take everything you've got and the, everything anybody you can influence uh, as well. And that was my first face-to-face outside of my childhood growing up. It was my first chance to do something with my hands. And uh, I felt like the world's biggest failure. And I had no hope. I mean, I literally got uh, drained of, uh, of hope. Hmm. I didn't burn out, but I was on the road to burnout. I was overwhelmingly discouraged that with my great heart to change the world and make it a better place, I, I, I couldn't do it. It was out of, of my hands. I was called not to be hugely successful. I was called to be faithful. Mm. And I never forget these moments, many, many, many more, as you can imagine, in 45 years. But these were moments that uh, could have destroyed me, uh, caught me at a moment of uh, jet lag and exhaustion, uh, discouraged me. Uh, but did not lead me to burnout. And Wes, why do you think they didn't? Because for some they do, right? I think many people see the enormity of the need. They're overwhelmed by it. Their hearts are broken, and that's such a good thing. But but then they move from that brokenheartedness, and they throw themselves at the need, and often with a sense that that it is all on their shoulders, you know, kind of a the Atlas syndrome, you could call it, right? Just imagining that the weight of the world is on your shoulders. And then if you don't do it all, if you don't solve the problems, then nothing good will happen. Um, and and they do. They ultimately come to, to burnout. So why why was it different? You were on the cusp of that, and 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 yet you were not crushed by that. And something very different played out. I think it's God's grace because there's nothing special about me. Uh, I've come to I've come to observe, and I and I think the saddest thing, and there's burnout in every occupation, but the saddest burnout is among those who have given themselves 
uh, to the weak, to the poor, uh, to the sick. Um, but I've watched over the years, uh, burnout should not surprise you overnight. You don't wake up in the morning suddenly burned out. There are warning signs, uh, some of which you can do something about. It isn't inevitable. It's kind of, and I think of it kind of like the, uh, the bases, uh, in baseball. Uh, I think first base is, uh, exhaustion. And that should be a warning. Uh, the second base, I think, is discouragement. I think the third base is burnout. But you don't get to third base until you pass first and second. And then I don't think it's a home run. I think it's a run home. And I've watched it so happen so many times after burnout, uh, people give up. I served in Haiti, you know, for four years, my first four years with Compassion. Um, it is a hard country. I don't know if you know, but people refer to it as a fourth world country. Uh, simply doesn't have the resources on its own. Uh, does need outside uh, interventions. Um, Haiti is only 800 miles from the United States. Uh, it's an easy place to get to. And um, there are no end of people with big hearts trying to uh, bless Haiti. A lot of them with no experience, just, uh, they, you know, they read James and realized that something's got to be done about orphans and widows. And uh, any Bible studies anywhere can send somebody to Haiti and say, on our behalf, do good. But I watched in Haiti. I lived there for four years. And believe it or not, in four years, I became like the veteran. Because life expectancy of, a, of an outsider, an expatriate, as we called them, uh, it was only 18 months. Mm -hmm. I watched it for six months. People moved in. They had what I had in Ethiopia. We're going to change this place. I can see everything that's wrong with it. Boy, let's just get in here and change this place. Then about six months later, they realized this is very complicated. There's a reason for things are as they are. And it's overwhelming. And my original ideas don't seem to work. They don't seem to be to be relevant. And for six months, I watched uh, people go through this turmoil of why am I here? What am I trying to do? There's no reason for hope uh, in a place like this. And then they come to a point where I'm leaving in six months. Or uh, we used to say they kind of go native. It's still an interesting life. And so you stay there, but you've given up your dream and your vision of it being any better. And I've watched that, you know, over and over. People came to me after a couple of years and said, please explain Haiti to me because I'd been there two years. I was a veteran. But I watched these people. I prayed with these people. They were wonderful people. And I realized um, there are things that could have helped them out. First of all, they should have understood the context better before they arrived with their big hearts. Uh, secondly, uh, and one of the reasons why I never actually got all the way to third base to burnout was the surety of my calling. I knew without a doubt from the tears of my boyhood uh, why I was there, what I was trying to accomplish. Haitians, by the way, were all descendants of West Africa. They're all descendants of slaves. So I loved them immediately. I knew their jokes and their proverbs. They were surprised that a white guy knew them as well as I did. But if you, if you understand the, the context you're going into, I think if you understand what success looks like, it's e easy to get overwhelmed like I was in Ethiopia and say, I'm going to change the, this whole 
this whole place. Mm-hmm. You've got to know what your mission is. You've got to know the limitations of your mission. As the Haitians used to say, you need to bloom where you're planted. There's no end of overwhelming things that need to be done in a setting like uh, like Haiti. Uh, but you've got to know what your expertise is. You've got to know uh, the resources you have available. You have to know the staff that you have available to you. And the thing I learned is because compassion was about releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name, I threw myself into anything that even remotely looked like that. But if it was something that wasn't that, I realized it was beyond my calling. Mm. And so I had the proverb in my head almost all the time, do what you can and influence what you can't. And so I began to network with other organizations that were into reforestation and water provision and road construction and economic development, things that wasn't my calling. I realized I am not called to do everything, but boy, what I am called to do, uh, I am going to do with all of my heart. I learned uh, that if if you're going to avoid burnout, the first thing you got to do is avoid exhaustion. You've got to learn to manage uh, your life. Um, you got to learn how to say no to things that stir your heart, but they're outside of your of your expertise. Um, you need to learn that if your plate is full and you're on the brink of exhaustion, don't say yes to one more thing. Don't say yes to anything until you say no to something that you're currently doing that apparently that is more important uh, to do. And I learned if you are pressured to say yes, say no. Mm. You can only do uh, so much. And so, you know, getting to first base is the way to to avoid burnout. Don't let yourself get exhausted. Learn to balance. Stay, take care of yourself. You can't help others if you can't uh, keep your own body healthy. Mm. And stay focused on your mission. Then you get to second base, discouragement. And the way I learned to get around that is Haiti is a reason to be discouraged in all directions. Nothing works there. I I used to maintain if you can make something good happen in Haiti, you could probably do it anywhere uh, in the world because it is is so (laughs) fraught with problems. What I began to realize is when I'm thinking like that, I am not ultimately on mission. I am overwhelmed by the circumstances of poverty. And poverty is so much more than those circumstances. Those are just the situations in which you find poverty. But if you're looking for success, if you're looking for joy, then look to the very people that you're trying to minister to. Look, I, I learned to listen to the, to the Haitian peasants. I learned that God gives you two ears and one mouth, and you should be using them in about that proportion, twice as much listening. And they taught me about courage and about hope and about joy and about faith. And I learned to draw my encouragement for what was happening in individuals that I was helping along the way in what I was doing. And if I could keep myself from exhaustion, if I could keep myself on the perspective of my mission, I never got past second base. Mm. Never in these 45 years, actually, have I gotten to the point where I burned out and said, I just need to go and and do something else. Mm. Most of those battles were fought uh, early on as I stepped in. Once I understood my calling, uh, I never looked back. Mm. Well, so, so much rich wisdom there, Wes. I'm, 
uh, among other things, particularly struck by what you're talking about in terms of a clarity of focus and a, a sense of calling to a particular thing rather than feeling like you need to take it all on yourself because nothing is a more certain formula for exhaustion than just going out there and throwing yourself at every need, every invitation, every opportunity. Um, and, and so that the ability to say no to things really comes from a positive vision for what, what is your unique calling and what you need to give yourself to. How, how do you hone in on that? I mean, um, you know, let's just say there, there were someone at, in Haiti and they were, they were passionate and they were seeking to serve the Lord. Uh, but they perhaps didn't have that clear sense of calling. And so they were involved in economic development and water and government reform and, and other things. How would you encourage them to hone in on what they need to focus on so that they could prune back of everything else? Yep. Uh, I, I would encourage them, uh, to, to get a new grip on your perspective of poverty, uh, do not focus on the circumstances of poverty. That will overwhelm you. Uh, come to uh, an understanding of what is it, what does success look like? What are you trying to accomplish? Why are you providing water? What do you envision for these people with that blockage to their development having been ripped back? Um, you know, the, and the reason for burnout oftentimes is the same reason uh, as there is for poverty. You know, the worst thing about poverty is not a lack of water or hygiene or sanitation, even food or money. The worst thing about poverty is this overwhelming message that gets into the heart of even a little child that says, give up. Nobody cares. Nothing's going to change. Nobody's coming to your rescue. When a little child believes that, they used to say in Haiti, the little tiniest ones, they'd say, uh, if you asked them a question, they'd say, they'd say immediately, Mpakone. that means I don't know. And that was their worldview. I'm stupid. I don't know. I don't know things. If you asked them, can you do this for me? They would say, Mpakapab. I'm not capable. Mm. Um, or if you asked them, do you have this? They would say, Mpakone. They would say, I don't have, I don't know, I can't do. And then they would do this little gesture. Anybody visited Haiti probably has seen this. And they say, pas moi. It's not my fault. I think this was Pontius Pilate, you know, washing his hands. Mm -hmm. But even a little child can get this worldview that nothing is going to change. And there's no reason to hope I, I give up. And what I used to tell compassion staff is, we're trying to get to these little children before the embers go out before they buy into that worldview for themselves. And with a little local church and with our programs and a, and a hug and a letter from a sponsor, we're trying to fan that little ember until one day a flame and the child comes back uh, and is on the, on the road to recovery. This is why I think bringing a child to a relationship with Christ, by the way, is the most important thing you can do. If there's any reason for hope, it's that God knows you. He knows your name, the hairs on your head. But when a child gives up on themselves and doesn't expect hope to change, that is the same thing that leads a relief and development worker uh, to burnout. They failed at that first effort. They failed at the second one. They're now becoming confused and, and hurt. And uh, the same message is going on in their heads. Give up. Nobody cares. Nothing's going to change. This is all bigger than you. And if you buy into that, you're buying into the very same message that it, that destroys people in poverty from within. 
And so it shouldn't surprise us that the very same message I maintain, probably from the very same source, the very gates of hell, uh, ruins and destroys uh, the best of uh, the biggest hearts of people wanting to help. Uh, my, my advice has always been look for the little victories within the context of what you're doing. It's going to be a little child. It's going to be a grandma with, with, with gratitude and wisdom. Uh, look for the little victories. Forget your, your, your over big objectives and, and the huge budgets and all the hiring and staff. Uh, find your victories within the context of the bigger picture of why you're there and what you're doing. Mm, that's great, Wes. And that that really comes back to something you said earlier about defining success in the way that God does. Because yeah. so often we can go in, whether it's, you know, we imagine that success looks like transforming a struggling community into suburban America or it's in New York City or or even, you know, from a kind of a more um, sophisticated uh, aid and development. Well, it's no, it doesn't look like suburban America, but it looks like X, Y, Z system that is all working and functioning X, you know, yeah. in a certain way. And it and you're saying, well, well, you know, some of those things may be totally off base and some of them may be worthy goals that ultimately Success needs to be defined differently. How, how would you define success? It isn't, again, it isn't those external circumstances. I mean, I don't know anybody in poverty in America who doesn't have access to water. Mm-hmm. It's good to provide water, but it's, it's good, but it's not enough. And it's the same thing with almost all the other conditions with most of the relief and development agencies uh, try to address. You have to ask yourself, if everybody had water, if everybody had electricity, would that do it? Would they be released from poverty? And my, I maintain probably not. Poverty is an internal thing. External things affect it, but it's an internal message on a heart that says, give up, nobody cares. When they understand, and I've watched this for 45 years, when a little child understands that God knows their name, uh, cares for them, uh, knows the pattern of their fingerprints, uh, would have died on the cross if they were the only child on earth. Mm-hmm. They come to a very important understanding, and that is, well, maybe I do matter. And what we've tried to do a little success within compassion is we say, you're right, sweetheart. So what you think matters and what you feel matters and what you do matters. And I've watched the path out of poverty they go from nobody knows me, nobody cares, to I think maybe I matter, to what I think matters. And what we try to do with the sponsors is to write letters that say, uh, so what do you think? And they begin to say things that they're thinking, and finally they'll say things like this. Well, I'll tell you what I think. I don't think my community should look like that. And I don't think people should treat each other like that. And I think that's wrong, and I think I can change that. Hmm. When a child goes from... I can do nothing, I am nothing, so I can make my world a better place. You have just won the war on poverty. Mm. And I believe it begins with the love of God, and it ends with the love of God lived out. And so if, if, you're, if your goal, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if success is changing the circumstances, I'm like, good, it's good to do good. But the truth is, doing good is not enough in the battle against poverty. We've got to do strategic uh, good. So look for the people side of, uh, of what you're working on. Mm. Yes. And I love that focus on the human heart, 
most of all, which is where Jesus always put his primary focus to. And, and of course, he went around healing bodies and uh, d- dealing with systems and structures, at least in some, some way or another, but, but ultimately always came back to the heart and the single individual knowing that they are of immense value, that their heavenly father loves them and that, and that other human beings love them as well. That's, that is success. And then everything else is just on, on the periphery. You and I have not spent a lot of time together, but it has just always seemed to me from the times we have interacted, from your writing, from your speaking, that you have kept a, a, a light heart, even while carrying very heavy loads at times. What, what small habits or practices do you feel God has used to enable that. I mean, you, you're someone who emphasizes small things. I love that. You, you know, uh, the book you mentioned earlier, I, I read that years ago. Love just the, the vision you have for how this, the smallest act, a, a single word to a mother in the airport who's exhausted and caring for her kids and just walking up to her. I remember your example of just telling her, Hey, I see that and you're doing a great job and how her face lit up. And I just, I, I just feel that is so true in terms of our ministry and external work, but but then also internally in our, in, in our walk with the Lord and in the habits we keep in our own lives, what, are, are there any, any particular things, small things that you have done that have fed your soul in that journey? You know, if you're a follower of Christ and you have the great joy of working as such an important part of the kingdom, uh, there should be a lot of joy. There should be a lot of laughter. Jesus probably got in more trouble for laughing and partying uh, than he ever did for weeping or uh, uh, or, you know, being uh, depressed. His, his disciples were the same. I don't know about you, uh, Jed, but I laugh more than most people I know. <laughs> uh, I also cry more than most people I know. Mm. The truth is, I live no more than 10 seconds away from tears. If I stop and I ponder my village... If I ponder the little old man in his seed corn, I am moved to tears in 10 seconds. But I can also be moved to tears of joy just pondering uh, the victories I've witnessed over all these years. And, you know, I often will take people overseas to to, to visit Compassion's Work to see a poverty-stricken village. And one of the things that shocks them is how much joy there is in the midst of that. How much laughter uh, do they hear? It takes a great deal of courage uh, to be joyful. Joy, as the Haitians used to tell me, joy is a decision. It's not dictated by circumstances. It's a decision. You choose whether to be joyful regardless of the circumstances uh, that you're going through. And so um, I think you need to look for the joy I think you need to laugh. I think you uh, need to surround yourself uh, with people uh, who can help you uh, to be who you want to be. Um, think through if you're on the if you if you're in burnout or if you're on the brink of it. Think through the people uh, that immediately make up the world around you. Uh, if you've got people uh, who are on the brink of burnout themselves or are burned out or whose humor is always sarcastic, or um, they are takers, and they will drain your soul, they will drain your spirit. Uh, Pray for them, but do not allow them to overwhelm you. 
Look for people who will give. Look for people who will lift you up. People who have light hearts. People who uh, can see the joy. People who can see the the uh, the beauty in, in what's going around you. So you've got to guard your own heart. Uh, that is clearly uh, a part of the survival. And if you find it's been too long since you laughed, uh, then you're probably surrounded by the wrong people. Uh, I would suggest you surround your. <laughs> you expect this from me. Uh, surround yourself by children. Children know how to see through it. They know how to laugh. Children laugh way more than adults do. And oftentimes have no reason for that kind of joy other than the strength of their courage and all. And, and Wes, now correct me if I'm, I'm off on this a little bit, but, you know, when you say, you know, um, having a clarity of vision helps fuel that joy, I imagine some people think, you know, I, I've never had a clear sense of calling. And by that, they mean I, I'm not like William Wilberforce. I've not devoted my whole life to abolishing the slave trade, or I'm not like West Stafford. I know that my mission is a particular um, leading of an organization like Compassion, you know. Um, but I'm sensing, I, at least my guess would be that you would say to them, well, maybe you don't yet know a particular job that you're supposed to fill, um, maybe even a per- particular task or undertaking, but the to live out those small acts of love faithfully day in and day out to be uh, someone who is bringing forth the kingdom of God in the places that they touch, in, in each interaction, in each relationship, that that itself is the core calling and, the, and, and ultimately the first definition of success. Would, would you say that? Or, or are you saying that it's so important that we have a, a particular you know, uh, job that we know we need to do? Yep. You know, it's an advantage. And I think, um, you know, I think the reason God made my calling so absolutely clear in that village is I'm pretty sure that, uh, you know, when he was knitting me in my mama's room and the angels were giving advice, uh, when I was born, they must have said, well, you know, he's not a rocket scientist. We're going to have to make it real clear what he's to do with his life. (laughs) And that allowed me to be raised in that little village by missionary parents. I say, um, until you know uh, your heart really, until you really know why you are doing what you're doing, then do everything at least 100%. You never know when it uh, will lead to uh, your purpose and calling. You don't know uh, whether it will, um, will uh, uh, show you uh, the joy in it all. You know, the verse that, I, uh, that I've used for my lifetime to guide me is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. You know, that was written by Solomon, the wisest guy in the world, but I think it could be improved by being written in the form of a contract. I think it should have read, if you will trust in the Lord with all your heart, and if you will not lean on your own understanding, and if you will acknowledge him in all your ways, then he will direct your path. And so I often am dealing with young people who say, I don't really have a sense of calling. I'm not sure what matters. And the, what's your advice for me? And my advice is, until you know, then live every day to the fullest. Be the most alive person around. Uh, because you never know 
when this person that you're meeting right now is a piece of the puzzle of your life that's going to be there for 10 years. You never know if this lecture or this class that you took or this person that you met is going to steer you uh, into the direction you're supposed to go. Until you have a clear-cut calling, you've got an obligation to live life more than 100%, be more alive than anybody around you. Mm. Yes, and that's someone something anyone anywhere can do, uh, and that's that's marvelous advice, of course, for anyone, and maybe especially those who are uh, young and and haven't yet charted a life course. I, I've noticed, uh, you know, sometimes there's a tendency to say, "Well, I don't know what the perfect job is for me, so I will kind of just wait and deliver pizzas until it comes along and bonks me on the head." And I, yeah, in those moments, I, I really encourage those folks, hey, find something and give yourself to it 100%. It may not be your lifetime calling, but in the process of pouring in 100%, you will learn so much and perhaps you will discover a life calling, uh, that, that will, that will go the distance. I, I absolutely believe that. I, I got testimony of so many young people. Uh, that I've given that advice have come back later and said, wow, you were right. I thought it was going to be a little internship. I thought I was going to volunteer for a week of summer camp. Uh, and you know what? It gave me my whole purpose in life. Mm. Speaking of leaders, how do you feel a, a leader in ministry, whether, you know, CEO like you were or a pastor or just a, a team leader, volunteer team leader, how can they best care for the the health of the people they're leading? You know, just... And not only spiritually, but their body, mind, just the whole person. Leadership ultimately is, in fact, servant leadership. And in order to serve your people, you've actually got to know them. Hmm. Uh, you've got to, they, they've got to know, uh, anybody you're leading has got to know that they, that you know them, uh, that you care about them, that you will protect them, that you will treat them with justice. Shepherding is probably the most powerful uh, concept of, of leadership. So if you're leading, um, let your let your people know know who they are. Um, many times we think of leaders as those who are you know these great communicators. Uh, again, uh, God gives you two ears and one mouth, and in leadership they're to be used about in that proportion. You should be doing twice as much listening uh, to your people as. Uh, as talking. So this, the, the sheep that you are shepherding need to have the assurance that you know them, that you care about them, and that you will protect them, and that you will treat them fairly when, when their backs are, are to the wall. Uh, but the second thing is you, you need to let these sheep know you. They got to know you beyond your, um, your title. Uh, you know, I, I I have a PhD. My name is Dr. Stafford. I don't let anybody use that because it's a wall. It's a barrier. Mm. My favorite title, uh, and it's the title that I get all across the world now, is Papa Wes. Mm. Little kids all across the world, and now that we're all on Facebook with each other, they're referring to me. It's my favorite title, and it is something that I feel like maybe I've earned. Nobody nobody gives away a loving title like that unless they sense that they can love you and trust you and, mm. and believe in you. And so um, you got to be honest with them. You've got to speak up and guide them. You've got to live, uh, model the life uh, that's necessary for success 
in the context of, uh, of your organization's purpose and culture and, uh, and mission. Um, a leader uh, at times uh, has to be more than who they actually are. Uh, you've got to be braver than you feel like you are mm, yeah. uh, at times. Yeah. Uh, I think the leader is the guardian of the mission, the vision, uh, the passion. The leader has to be the last one to give up hope and the first one to see the silver lining when the storm is done as the light comes from behind the cloud. Um, you really cannot make people follow you uh, if you want to be successful. They need to want to follow you. This is why Jesus is a good shepherd. You know, he didn't drive the sheep. Uh, he says, uh, I, I go before the sheep. They know my voice. Well, we're, we're near to the end of our time, Wes. Um, but I, I'd mm. love to hear y- your thoughts on this last question. If if you had a chance to go back and talk with with young Wes when when you were just first starting out in this work, what counsel would you give him about these things? Yeah, yeah, I knew that you would ask that, and I I had reason to think about that, and I thought back. Uh, clear to that little village, to that broken-hearted little white kid. Uh, I think I would have told him, uh, Wes, you're you're right. The world isn't fair, um, but you need to know that to whom much is given, uh, much is required. And uh, because you've got a scratch on your arm, um, that makes you different, and that makes you uh, have a responsibility. If you care about the poor, young man, uh, you are as close to the heart of God as you can possibly get. You are as close to the spirit of Christ. You are as close to the priorities of the kingdom of God uh, as you can possibly get. And so if you feel called to minister to the poor, please know that there is no higher calling than that. But please know that you don't do that in isolation. Uh, every little child you bless, every person you help and encourage, there's a cloud of witnesses. There are the hosts of heaven looking on who stand and rejoice when one child uh, enters in. But there's also the hosts of hell, equal uh, size of people who rattle their chains in rage whenever a little child is blessed in Jesus' name. So when you step into this field, which apparently you want to step into joining compassion or anything that is ministering to poor, you got to know that you just put a big old bullseye on your chest. You just became a warrior in one part of these two kingdoms. Over every child's head, there is a battle raging between heaven and hell, and you have just chosen heaven. And so you will be attacked on every side. Don't be naive and think that it's going to be victory to victory. Uh, if you wanted that, you should have gotten a job that you know pays good money and lets you buy a big house or something. But when you step into uh, justice, when you step into mercy, when you step into relief, development, helping those who are hurting, you have chosen uh, to step into a battle. And don't be surprised by that. And when you find yourself exhausted, don't be surprised by that. When you're discouraged, just know that it's got the fingerprints of Satan all over it. And don't let yourself burn out because what you're doing 
is so incredibly important. And I like to say, hey, if you read to the end of the book, we win. Every knee bows and declares that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, it is it is worth it. I have said, and I would say to to young Wesley, I would say, um, it's worth it's worth the price. The joy is amazing. There will be a lot of tears, but the day is coming. We know um, when there will be a sudden trumpet blast. Uh, we will look up and the sky will roll back like a scroll, we're told. And, uh, and we'll go home. Home where there is no more sickness. Home where none of your friends die in your arms. Home where there's plenty of food. Home where there is no death. Home where there's not even any tears. Because Jesus promises uh, in Revelation, I, I reserve the right to wipe away the last tears from their eyes. And so I don't know about you, but I keep an eye on the horizon. I keep waiting for that trumpet blast. I cannot wait to run into the arms of my Lord and my Savior, my Redeemer, my King, my Jesus. And I cannot wait to have him wipe the tears from my eyes. Way too many tears for one, one lifetime. But oh, the thing I hope is as he wipes the tears from my eyes, he also notices the sweat from my brow because I fought all the way. I, I, I blessed the little ones. I spoke up for those who couldn't speak for themselves. I fed the hungry. I healed the poor, the, the, the sick, until I was suddenly and wonderfully interrupted by heaven. That's the prayer that I have for myself. It would be the prayer I would have for that young guy who had no idea what the world was going to bring to him. And it's the prayer I would have to everyone who's listening, who's feeling burned out and wondering, is it worth it? I would say it is worth it. One day you will know. We're not called to change the world. We're not called to be hugely successful at everything we put our hand to. But we are called to be faithful. And every act is, is witnessed by the hosts of heaven. And one day it will blow your mind when you walk through those pearly gates and there's a standing ovation for the first time in your life <laughs> because everybody knows what you did was so incredibly important uh, in the kingdom of God. That day's coming. I know it with all my heart. Amen, yeah. Wes. Amen. Yeah. Yes. Let that be the final word. For it is, it is the final word and will be the final word. <laughs> <laughs> it, will be, it will be amen and amen I loved how Wes finished and I will not add to it but I'll just encourage this if you have just a moment don't immediately race off to the next thing in life pause for a moment if there were things that Wes shared that you noticed or felt deeply sit with them for a moment if you have a journal write about it lift it up to God in prayer if there's some action that you've felt encouraged to take, then take it. Set those things in motion now. There is no time like the present to receive God's good gifts. A final note too, 
I would love to invite you to join me and the entire KFO community at the KFO 2021 Summit this year in the city of Cincinnati, starting on September 15th. It will be a rich and vibrant time of Lord willing being together in the flesh once again after a very long hiatus in that. There's more information on that at the KFO website. Most of all, though, I pray that you will live into this joy that Wes Stafford was talking about, for indeed, it is worth it. You've been listening to Justice and the Inner Life with Jed Medefit, a production of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. To learn more about the Alliance, visit us online at kfo.org.